Welcome to Nemesine, the podcast of the Institute for Research on Women, hosted by Andrea Zerpa and Amina Cuberte. The IRW is an interdisciplinary scholarly hub for feminist research since the 1970s, part of the School of Arts and Sciences at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Nemesine is the Greek goddess of storytelling and as an archetype represents the importance of oral histories. On this podcast, we center conversations about feminist work and research across disciplines through the ancient oral tradition of storytelling. Today on the podcast, we have none other than IRW's faculty director, Dr. Arlene Stein. She is a sociologist and author who writes about gender, sexuality, and American culture. Her work looks at the intersection of personal and political change, the stories we tell about our lives, the things that can't be said, and how groups mobilize to narrate their experiences. She received the American Sociological Association's Simon and Gagnon Award for career contributions to the study of sexualities. She teaches courses on the sociology of gender and sexuality, culture, self and society, and trauma memory, and writing within and beyond academia. Her latest book, Unbound, Transgender Men and the Transformation of Identity was reviewed by the New York Times, Harper's and the New Yorker, among others. She is also the author of The Stranger Next Door, an ethnography of a Christian conservative campaign against LGBT rights, which explores clashing understandings of religion and sexuality in American culture. It received the Ruth Benedict Book Award. Other books by her are Sex and Sensibility, which looks at how feminists redefine the meaning of lesbianism and reluctant witnesses, which traces the rise of Holocaust consciousness in the United States. Thank you for coming on, Arlene. Thank you for uh, inviting me to do this. This is great. Such an honor to interview you. What were your undergraduate and graduate experiences like in the 80s and early 90s? Okay, well, actually, I started college uh, in the 70s, um, which uh, really makes me feel old. But, um, you know, I started at the really at the tail end of the early second wave women's liberation movement feminist movement. Um, and I was only barely aware of it at the time, although I think I was very much um, a beneficiary of it. So um, I think that I, in some sense, considered myself a feminist, even though I didn't really know what that meant at the time. And I ended up going to a small private college in, in Massachusetts that was previously an all-male college, Amherst College, in part because I thought it was sort of a feminist act to be a part of the first class of women at this college. You know, they gave me financial aid to go there, otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do it um, because my family uh, was very working class and I come from a family of uh, immigrants and I was the first person to go to college in my family. Were you a part of the feminist and LGBTQ plus movements at the time? LGBTQ movements. At that point, I uh, was not involved. I didn't think of myself uh, as queer. That happened somewhat later uh, when I was in graduate school at University of California, Berkeley in the 1980s. And at that time, I was very involved in reproductive rights. To some extent, I was involved in LGBT movements. And uh, I taught one of the first 
courses at UC Berkeley on uh, lesbian and gay studies. So I was, you know, interested in trying to uh, expand the, the possibility of discussing um, questions of sex sexuality and sexual difference in ways that hadn't been done before. And so, um, yes, I was, I think I was uh, among one of the early people to do that. Can you talk more about your experience being the first, being part of that first class of women at Armhurst? That's so cool. <laughs> well, uh, it was weird. It might have been cool, but it was also really weird. Uh, when we got there, you know, they hadn't really planned. Was, this was a it was a college that was founded in the early 1800s. Um, it we had this sort of deep kind of masculine and kind of upper class culture. And here I was, a working class kid from the Bronx and a woman to boot. And I was really kind of out of place. So it wasn't a really easy place to be for me. And it wasn't an easy time to be there. When we got there, uh, they were so unprepared for women students that they hadn't even switched out the urinals from all of the bathrooms, from the women's bathrooms. And when we got there, my freshman dorm uh, the women in my freshman dorm planted avocado trees or avocado plants in the women's, in the urinals in the women's bathrooms. And actually, um, I still have it. There was a picture of me standing next to one that was published in the college newspaper the first week of co-education. And it's sort of a, something that I've held on to and I'm very proud of. So the, the avocado plant signified uh, here we are, you know, women at this formerly all-male school, but it also signified to some extent the ways in which we didn't really fit in. You know, we had to improvise and we had to, uh, you know, kind of declare ourselves there. And it wasn't, it wasn't really all that easy. A lot of men actually didn't want us there. <laughs> so, uh, and a lot of the alumni um, were not very happy about the fact that the college decided to go co-ed because, you know, they, for them, being at an all-male college was all about, you know, all of these male bonding rituals and keeping women at a distance, and they didn't quite know what to do with, a, with us. But, um, you know, it certainly being there made me into the strong feminist I think I am today because of all the, the ways in which we had to battle during those early years. How has living on both the East and West Coast shaped you as an activist and as an academic? Yeah, for a long time, I very much considered myself kind of uh, to be sort of bi-coastal. And I still go back and forth as much as I can. I have a lot of friends on the West Coast. And, you know, I lived in California and Oregon for a total of about 20 years, uh, both as a graduate student and as a uh, a professor, but I'm originally from New York. So I came back to the West, I came back to the East Coast to take this job at Rutgers. And because my mother was um, having health issues and I wanted to be closer to her and my partners and kid were also, my partner was also from the East Coast. And so we wanted our kid to grow up with grandparents. But, you know, I guess in some ways my heart is still on the West Coast. For me, it represented, you know, an incredibly freeing and kind of radical culture that I never experienced on the East, on the East Coast, at least in the 1980s and early 90s when I was living there. Um, in San Francisco, it was just a really exciting 
time to be there, in part because of the movements that I was talking about earlier. It was a difficult time to be there. It was the beginnings of the AIDS epidemic. And so I experienced a great deal of loss as well in terms of friends who died of AIDS, uh, HIV. But it was, uh, it, was a, it was a great time to be there. So how has it shaped me as an activist and an academic? I think I have a, you know, maybe a bigger sense of what this country is in some ways than many people, but I've never lived in the middle of the country. So I think I'm probably missing out on a whole set of different perspectives from there. I've also lived in in the United Kingdom in England. And so that is also a very important part of my life experiences. Thank you. How does sociology help you understand the world? Oh, well, um, you know, I have to quote the great American sociologist of the mid-1950s and 1960s, C. Wright Mills, uh, because he put it best. He, he believed that sociology offered a way of understanding the relationship between one's biography and the historical context in which one lives. And, you know, for me, that has always been the essence of the social, what he called the sociological imagination to see what it helps to see oneself as an individual who's embedded in larger contexts. So we might think of our problems as being very personal, very individual, but really when many, many people have the same kinds of problems and the same kinds of challenges, we know that they're not necessarily just personal at all. So C. Wright Mills used the example of unemployment. When somebody loses their job, they think of that as a sort of incredibly personal tragedy. But when millions of people are also unemployed, we have to see that as something that is a social problem and not simply a personal problem. And feminism and feminists made a similar kind of argument that the personal is political, that many of the things that we see as simply personal are actually embedded in larger structures of power. And I find that incredibly important to understand. The courses that you teach at Rutgers sound very interesting. They're very diverse. And I'm particularly curious about your class on trauma and memory. Can you give us a glimpse into what that class is like? Hmm. Okay, well, that course uh, looks at how we uh, remember and make sense of the past and also of, uh, particularly of, of the impact of uh, difficult and traumatizing events such as slavery, the Holocaust, and even on a smaller scale, uh, sexual abuse. So we look at the ways in which we understand the past by uh, telling stories about those events and about those experiences. And we look at the ways that different social contexts offer different opportunities for telling different kinds of stories. So, you know, I'll give the example of sexual abuse and sexual assault. For many, many years, uh, women who experienced sexual assault pretty much kept uh, those experiences to themselves, and they didn't really speak openly about them. They might not have even un had an understanding of sexual assault in a broader way, but simply as something that happened to them. But over time, it became possible to tell a larger story about sexual assault as something that is experienced by 
a lot of women, maybe even most women at some point in their lives, and also by some men as well. And that larger story made it, and the circulation of that larger story made it possible for people to tell and process their own experiences and to tell their own stories. So, you know, I'm very interested in the ways in which these kinds of storytelling opportunities change over time and how the context of how stories are told, especially stories about difficult things change as more and more people are able to, you know, sort of share their experiences. So we, in the, in the course, we talk about different kind of case studies of uh, historical events and how they're either, you know, understood or not very well understood over time. Do you think at any point in your course, you might talk about the coronavirus pandemic and how that's remembered? Yeah, in fact, uh, last semester during the pandemic, teaching on Zoom, I taught this course to undergraduates. And one of the main projects that everybody did was to work in groups to try and devise a memorial for people that have died of COVID. So what would that memorial look like? Um, Where would it be situated? Who would be remembered and frontline responders and their role in the pandemic and you sort of organize their memorials around them. Some focused on Asian people and the ways in which they were the subject of particular discrimination during the pandemic. I'm using the past tense, but fortunately these things are still going on. So yes, the pandemic is certainly an instance of a kind of society-wide Uh, event that I've certainly talked about in my class and that other people will are trying to make sense of even as it happens. That sounds like such a fruitful project not just because it relates so much to what you teach but also because my minor is political science so I find that often we were just talking about like policy or like failures at the state level And we never really got the opportunity in like my sort of classes to mourn or to just reflect on all that was and is still being lost. So that sounds like a really amazing idea. What is your writing process like and how do you decide on a book idea? Oh boy. Well, my writing process is uh, to pull out a lot of my hair, you know, um, (laughs) sort of to feel tortured during uh, a lot of the writing. On the other hand, I also really enjoy writing. So it's it's kind of a love-hate thing for me. Don't get enough time to write with all of my other obligations. That's why I'm often very greedy during the summer to sort of just do my own thing. How do I decide on a, a book project idea? That's a difficult one. I really have to, you know, it takes me a, a long time to figure figure one out. So right now I'm kind of in between projects and I'm having a hard time sort of figuring out what the next one will look like. So, but to give you an example of what I've worked on in the past that just kind of came to me, my last book was a a book about transgender men, which I followed four trans men as they were undergoing chest surgery at the same uh, clinic in Florida. And it it tells their stories over uh, of the experience of uh, transforming their bodies and also transforming their lives. Um, And also tells the stories of other people who are close to them, family members and friends. That 
book idea came to me because a friend of mine came back from that same clinic in Florida because a friend of hers had gone there for surgery and she told me about it. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. The, the sociologist in me kind of like, you know, perked up. I just couldn't really uh, understand, you know, what was at stake in that kind of scene. Like what, what brought people there? What were they seeking? How could we make sense of it? So that, you know, just kind of, that was an example of a, a book topic that just kind of emerged pretty effortlessly effortlessly but it, it doesn't always work that way yeah the things you were saying about writing were really um familiar as a student and um also i remember we interviewed professor charlotte bunch and she was also my professor for a time and one of the things she would always say is like the hardest thing about writing is sitting down to write and I, that just reminded me a lot of what you're saying. Some people who write a lot, you know, and who are really productive say that it's important to write every day, you know, just like spend a little bit of time every day writing. And I've, I've never really been able to do that. The idea of it appeals to me. <laughs> I've just never really been able to enact that. But yeah, I think that's probably a good thing to do. Even half an hour a day, you know, is a good thing. I definitely need to adopt that this semester. I refuse to like get to the point where I just sit and have to write like all these essays in one week. Can you please tell us about your next book project? One thing I became, became very interested in over the last four years during the Trump administration was the, the history of basically white Christian supremacy in this country. And, you know, of course, I'm not alone. A lot of people have been thinking about this later, uh, lately. I became aware of the fact that in New Jersey, there's a long history of far right movements that are basically movements uh, for white Christian supremacy, which I didn't really know about, particularly in the 1930s, before the U.S. entered World War II. So I've become very interested in why it is, this sort of goes back to my interest in trauma and collective memory, why it is that very few of us even know that this history exists. Why, you know, we tend to think of New Jersey and we tend to think of the Northeast as very tolerant liberal liberal places, but there's a great deal of history that suggests that that's not the case at all. So wh why did that history get lost? Why don't we remember it? Um, so that's something that I'm thinking about right now and actually talking with two uh, members of the uh, landscape architecture department at Rutgers who are also interested in the topic and we're thinking about doing a project together on sites of memory in New Jersey and basically the absence of these kinds of sites of memory of particularly of far right organizing. So that's one thing I'm thinking about. What's been your favorite part of directing the Institute for Research on Women? I've met such great people that I wouldn't normally encounter at Rutgers uh, through the Institute. So uh, you know people on our executive board, people who are members of our seminar, uh, staff people and volunteers such as present company. Uh, you know, Rutgers, as we know, is a very huge and it can be a very impersonal place. And um, even though I've been at Rutgers for 20 years now, over 20 years, up until the time that I came to IRW, 
the only people I really knew well were people in my department that I teach in in sociology. But through the IRW, I've come to, you know, get to know really interesting people outside of sociology. And, you know, my own work has always been very interdisciplinary. So IRW, you know, sort of really embodies what I think is the best of Rutgers um, and really transcends any one discipline or any, any one field of study. It's been a really wonderful opportunity to, to be a part of it for six years. Oh, it will be six years by the end of this year. Congratulations. That's so cool. So yeah, it's, it's the end of my second and also my last term. And I'll be sad to leave, but also time to uh, give somebody else the opportunity to, to, to direct the IRW. So our next question is more about how you decompress in your free time, considering how much that you do. And especially after you've talked about all the great projects that you work on, it would be great to know how you relax and take some downtime. Mm. I play with my dog named Stormy. She's a poodle mix. She's about a year old pandemic puppy. <laughs> I like to travel a lot, uh, although I haven't really done a whole lot of that recently. But yeah, I have friends in lots of different parts of the country and the world and family too. And I, I enjoy visiting them. My partner and I, Cynthia and I, um, like to take hikes. Uh, we like to watch a lot of television. <laughs> oh, there's so much great TV on now, although during the pandemic, we've watched more TV than ever before, but just finished. I don't know if you've heard of or you've watched White Lotus. It's on HBO and it's, a, it's kind of a dark comedy about a group of rich Americans who vacation on Hawaii and uh, the ways in which they interact with people who work at this resort who tend to be Hawaiians, people of color, other people of color, and um, the kinds of dynamics that, that take place between those two groups. It's actually really funny, really dark, and it's kind of a scathing social commentary about class and race, which I think is really smart. I, I love British costume dramas, The Crown. I love British detective shows just finished watching a series called Unforgotten that I really like. During the pandemic, some friends and I started a film group where we watched a film about once a month and watched it at home and then talked about it on Zoom. And that was really fun. Um, it was a way of connecting with people during the pandemic and also watching a lot of a lot of uh, international films and you know thinking about them a little bit more carefully than you would normally think about them or i would normally think about them when i watch them that was that was great and uh, i think that's it but yeah i've been watching a little bit too much tv but <laughs> we've got to survive the pandemic somehow right <laughs> yeah i i have to check out that white lotus show oh. sounds really interesting yeah it's it, it's a little disturbing, but it's also kind of laugh out loud funny at times. <laughs> so we've come to our last question. We ask almost every 
guests on the podcast what their zodiac sign is, but I know that you're Pisces, as most of the team at RW is. Um, Do you you relate to your sun sign, Pisces? And do you happen to know your rising and moon signs? Don't. Do you relate to Pisces? No, do I relate? You know, I'm not, I'm not big on horoscopes, although at times when I, you know, read my horoscope when they're, they used to be more circulated, you know, more often than they are now in terms of like newspapers and stuff. But at times I think, oh my God, that's really right on. How do they know that? You know, but characteristics of Pisces are supposed to be other than I think we're very empathetic and also wishy-washy right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I would hope that I, you know, I embody the empathy part, but the wishy-washy, I don't like that part so much. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. You'll have to tell me more. (laughs) Yeah. There's, there's an app called CoStar that is pretty simple to use. And I I usually don't really read um, my horoscopes, but I like reading just traits about the different signs on my birth chart. And I also didn't always relate. I I relate very much to being a Pisces. It's my chart is full of that of Pisces, but there's other things like my moon and rising signs, which are my rising is Gemini and my moon sign is Capricorn. And the parts about Pisces that I didn't connect with, I was able to really find in the other signs. So it's Mm. like really fun to just, I guess, understand yourself, like different parts of yourself. Mm-hmm. through maybe I need to start doing that <laughs> thank you for sharing and thank you for coming on Nemesine well thank you this was really fun yeah it was really great to meet you and hopefully um I get the opportunity to meet you both in person <laughs> yes. yes as my friends say inshallah yeah, may it may that be the case in the future <laughs> definitely yeah inshallah <laughs> okay well thank you both Thank you. you. See you in the future. Stay well, stay healthy. You too. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Nemesine. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at RWRutgers.